You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Good afternoon and welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm your host, Curry Bordelon. Today, we're delighted to have experts to discuss COVID in nursing practice. Thank you all for joining us today. First, we'll start with, you know, as we get started today, we're going to go around the room and let everybody introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about the work that they're doing. Dr. Suzanne Fogger. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Suzanne Fogger. I'm a professor at the School of Nursing in Psychiatric Nursing, and I also have uh, two clinical practices, the first working with patients at 1917, which is an HIV-positive clinic, and I help people to manage um, many times their trauma and to live life as well as possible, and I also have a clinic at uh, Cooper Green where I see patients with chronic pain. Excellent. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Tina McGinnis. Hello, I'm Dr. Tina McGinnis, and I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Um, I am a professor emerita from the UAB School of Nursing, and I have a passion and interest in the well-being of Alabama's citizens, especially as it relates to nursing workforce post-COVID. Thank you so much. We're excited to have you and look forward to uh, hearing from you. And last, we have uh, Ms. Paula Levi. Hi, everyone. My name's Paula Levi. I'm a third-year doctoral student here at the UAB School of Nursing, and my research focus is PTSD and ICU nurses. Excellent. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you, uh, Paula, for sure, because I know that you've done uh, extensive work or doing extensive work in this area. I think it goes without saying that COVID has really impacted all levels of the healthcare system. It really has this ongoing pandemic that we've been uh, still in right now, it, it continues to put en enormous pressures and so forth into all levels of the healthcare environment, especially in the intensive care. And I know, Paula, you've done, you're continuing to do a lot of work talking about psychological trauma for nurses within uh, the, the healthcare setting. Can you talk about some of your work and what you're seeing? Yes, I see nurses have experienced unprecedented psychological stress and trauma. And major sources are the high death rate despite their best efforts, uh, witnessing many patients die alone due to visitation restrictions, hearing the heart-wrenching last words of family members uh, to their dying loved one on telehealth or their phone, and uh, moral distress from providing fetal care. This can occur when they feel their prolonging pain and suffering of patients they feel will not survive. I know this can be quite uh, troublesome and very difficult for a lot of the families, and not, not only the families, but certainly the caregivers who see this day in and day out. Can we talk a little bit while we're on this uh, topic, and specifically the population of the intensive care nurse, can we talk a little bit more about you know, we, we were in a space where the newness of the pandemic, we had some reprieve, and then we got another wave with the Delta variant. What were you seeing in the nurses in that space? Were they able to cope and adapt and then come back, or did you see them in a new space of challenge? It was a definitely, a definitely very challenging for them. Many of them are very young and felt they were just too young to have witnessed so much death. Um, even nurses that were more experienced were, um, you know, they've, they've just been challenged by uh, COVID-19. And, um, you know, some, some of them have left uh, their positions for a less stressful position, or also others have left just to have a, a higher pay through travel nursing. And this has 
put on increased workload for the nurses who've remained. Yeah, we know this for sure. It's put an ongoing stressor for a lot of the different parts of the uh, of the healthcare system. And and you, you mentioned travel nursing, and we're going to touch on a little bit about that and some coping mechanisms and so forth as we move forward. But I'd like to bring in some of our other experts when we talk about this repetitive, ongoing trauma that occurs within our population of nurses and, and healthcare providers when we get to the point of PTSD. And I know both uh, Suzanne and Tina have some experience with that. Uh, Suzanne, can we talk a little bit about how this repetitive or cyclic ongoing psychological trauma, how does that impact individuals uh, and how, where do we get to the PTSD point? Um, by definition, PTSD requires an individual to have um, the experiencing of the distress for more than 30 days. So in the sense is that with the nurses in any particular location in which they're extremely stressed by COVID, such as the ICU nurses, um, many of the coping strategies that they may have had uh, are challenged with COVID, more isolation takes place. And with PTSD, one of the treatments for it is against isolation so that people use a buddy system to help manage. And many of the nurses, when they were in the COVID situation, they felt that they couldn't really utilize their families because of concern of bringing COVID home. And so they isolated themselves to prevent uh, the fear and the concern of contacting and, and in essence, bringing COVID home. So there is uh, disturbances of sleep, disturbances of appetite, uh, feeling that they relive the situation over and over again. And many times their sleep experiences are uh, impacted so that they uh, have no rest or respite from the ongoing and constant thoughts about uh, the experience that they've had. Uh, so this particular graph that's showing right now is from the American Nurses Foundation in terms of uh, nurses' experience during COVID and how many of them felt stressed and exhausted, which uh, leads to compassion fatigue when nurses, for the most part, their whole being in caring in requires that they are engaged and compassionate with their patients but when stressed and exhausted and overwhelmed and anxious, it's very difficult to be compassionate towards your patients or each other when you have uh, no reserves, uh, which increases the distress of the nurses because what they treat with, the very compassion is essentially on empty. You bring up such a good point talking about how that ongoing repetitive injury can can lead to uh, PTSD, but can help curb that is, in fact, being able to recharge, be able to refill, to reconnect. And that isolation element certainly challenged it even more. So, Dr. McGin uh, Tina McGinnis, can, can we talk a little bit about how, you know, from your expertise within uh, PTSD as well, how what are some of the end results? What do we see with those patients in that chronic state? So the UAB School of Nursing has worked a lot with the VA to understand and remediate um, cases of PTSD that our students, uh, when we work with uh, veterans and also our faculty 
in, in joint partnerships with the VA. So we have a lot of um, experience and understanding about what PTSD is. And as Dr. Farger was saying, one thing is for sure, um, one very effective treatment is for people to be together. We have social brains and we need to treat ourselves as social individuals. It really renews us to be around one another. And of course, one reason that the Lancet real, uh, recently published an article stating that there are there's anywhere from uh, 28% increase of uh, anxiety disorders, and I think the statistic was 26% increase in depressive disorders around the world, um, according to their epidemiologist, uh, is because we have been very isolated in many ways. And of course, that uh, spills over into our with our families and our children. And so when you, when you, many, many nurses have children and families and they have, as Paula mentioned, uh, a lot of concern that they could actually bring home COVID virus itself and the, the links that they go to, to prevent that. Uh, showering uh, in a bathroom, for example, specifically dedicated to the nurse working in the ICUs uh, with COVID. That's, that's one of the strategies. Um, so one nurse said to me, she feels like that the various waves of COVID are almost like being um, in the military, that they've had multiple deployments with COVID. And we know from uh, the experiences of veterans who have been deployed uh, multiple times during Operation Iraqi Freedom and <clears throat> Operation Enduring Freedom, that the more times you're deployed, the more stressful uh, things become and the more cognitive burden you carry with you because you've seen so much and you've endured so much. And so I think uh, it, it, with nurses, and Paula can address this even better, uh, they've seen so much and they've seen it repeatedly and now they're feeling like they're veterans of the COVID war. Excellent, thank you so much. That, that certainly lends a, a great insight to, uh, and, and a comparison that's very uh, attainable when you when you think about military, uh, military families and we know, understand how that repetitive uh, cycles of deployments and so forth does uh, s uh, put additional stressors onto the families. And Paul, I'd like to spend some time talking about, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about psychological trauma, and we spent some time talking about that. But you also mentioned something about compassion fatigue. Can we spend a little time talking about compassion fatigue? And, you know, nurses already in vulnerable populations and vulnerable environments, such as the intensive cares or the emergency departments or uh, the neonatal intensive cares and so forth, those, those nurses were already stressed. And now we've added something on this, which is an uncontrolled pandemic, which is now in a better place than it was before, and how that compassion fatigue really uh, put pressure on the healthcare providers. Well, I, they are just experiencing day in and day out, uh, seeing numerous patients die, or they're they're just very very ill. And it just, um, it never, it's, it's just not ceasing. It's just relentless. And so it's, it's hard to face this um, continuously at work. So they are experiencing compassion fatigue. Um, 
not not everyone, not all of the nurses, of course, but it, it just it is something that happens when you just see it so much. This is so true, and it does. It, it wears on the system, and it wears on everybody around uh, around you. But I do want to take a step back. We spent some time talking about COVID, and that's really is a lot of the focus of what we're going to talk about today. But adding in that is a lot of collateral issues. There's other issues that feed into the day-to-day function of an intensive care. Uh, and it goes beyond just COVID. There are other things that are in there, whether it be staffing, whether it be procedurals uh, uh, issues, whether it be the fact that there's, you know, what, travel nursing, whatever it might be. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other factors that play into that environment of additional traumas? Because it might be small here and there, but those traumas add up. Play into the intensive care, the day of the intensive care nurse. So anyone who'd like to talk about that. So Suzanne, can we spend some time talking about the other ancillary traumas that 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 push also alongside COVID in the ICU? We can talk about ICU, but we can also talk about nursing in general, because many times when folks come into nursing, they bring with them their own family experiences, and many individuals' family experiences have been around caretaking of parents, particularly if they have had underlying mental disorders or substance use in their family. And so when nurses, when women and men um, become nurses, many times that they bring with them their own trauma experiences, which puts them in a vulnerable position of being more at risk for uh, ongoing traumas, having had previous traumas or that their childhood experiences were rocky and didn't provide them with the ability to um, manage their own stressors as well as other people do. Um, One of the things that Paula brought up was is that the number of nurses in the ICU were very young, that they had not been long out of nursing school and may not have the same coping skills as older nurses perhaps. Um, And so because the ICU being a very uh, quick environment to remain in, if nurses do not have uh, in place their own buddy system, for example, because of the fact that they're relatively new into the profession, that they may be less able to respond to the ongoing stressors that they're experiencing. Um, One of the things that comes up is is that the most readily available anti-anxiety agent out there is alcohol. And so many people may choose to have a nightcap when they come home, and that over a period of time, this may develop into an underlying substance use disorder. Uh, Unfortunately, nurses have at well readily availability of substances such as opioids or benzodiazepines through their work environment, and which puts them at risk for increased use. One of the things that haven't had a chance to talk about but is playing in the background of COVID is the ongoing opioid epidemic. And so with nurses uh, being at risk that opioids have one could say an advantage in the sense is that they decrease pain and the pain that they decrease is both emotional pain as well as physical pain. And so that across time, uh, 
nurses have had the opportunity just because of the frequent and ongoing handling of such medications to use substances um, to manage perhaps their own pain or to fuel their own addiction if they come into nursing with an underlying substance use disorder. I'm so glad you brought up uh, substance use disorder because, you know, there's, there's quite often a stigma in nursing that we have to be resilient, we have to be steadfast, we have to be able to cope in any environment and stay true and not have any vulnerabilities. And what that does is set up a perfect storm for potential failure and we, who we are as nurses. And I think we, we can all believe in that because we do have to understand our vulnerabilities to, to be able to move forward. So when you're talking about substance use disorder, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because it is really about breaking that stigma, not letting that be a hush-hush sort of conversation because people need to recognize that. So when we talk about stigmas, I want to spend some time talking about other stigmas within healthcare uh, in just a minute, but we do have a question from our audience I want to take before I move on to another stigma that, that is not uncommon at all in healthcare. A question from our audience, can online connections via social media and you know, texting and so forth, video chatting, can that adequately substitute for that in-person connection. And I open that up to anyone because that is so true. We have been relegated to FaceTiming, to Zooms, and I think we could all say that a lot of times we're Zoomed out. It's what, how does that, can that equate to that in-person uh, element? Paula, do you have a, an opinion on that? Well, it's my personal opinion that it does It does not. Now, you mentioned several forms. You mentioned texting. If you're texting with a good friend and they just can't speak on the phone, then, you know, of course, that's fine. But social media, such as Facebook, there's, there's many sites that are set up even for well-being of nurses. But unfortunately, it's also an um, uh, outlet for others who feel to say something negative, which could just, you know, fuel their bad feelings even more. So I'm, I'm a little leery about uh, social media as far as getting together with others, but in person is wonderful. Texting with a friend, that, that's great too. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's so true. And you know, which that could be a show in its own talking about social media. So I'm, I'm glad you the, I'm glad you mentioned that. So, Tina, I, can we talk more about the other stigma in, in which, you know, unfortunately, in some cases, people feel so disconnected and isolated, they have no outlet, and they might resort to uh, a decision of taking one's own life. Can we talk some about suicide? Yes. And I believe we have to talk about it because based on that study where the graphic was showing a high rate of depression, high rates of um, isolation, I mean, that, that study was of the American Nurses Association sponsored that study. And it's a, a huge current study of 9,500 nurses who have been Repeat, who repeatedly studied, um, surveyed uh, during the COVID outbreak, and what it is revealing. And, and by the way, these uh, these 9,500 nurses, on average, are much more experienced nurses, uh, older nurses, and they are having a hard time too. So you know, I, you know, as Paul was saying, the younger nurses have been like baptized by fire with the COVID epidemic or pandemic and now and the nurses who have a lot of experience are stressed as well um, now not everybody experiences stress in the same way 
and thank goodness. Uh, but I would just, just to put up an, in a plug for the American Nurses Association, they are very much advocates for uh, optimal working conditions. And as we know, that has been challenged uh, in the, with the nursing shortage, as well as with the preponderance of a, a huge number of patients. I believe at one juncture in August, there was a negative number of ICU beds in the state of Alabama. So, uh, unfortunately, that seems to be subsiding now. Uh, but the point is, uh, the workload is tremendous. And as Dr. Fokker said, the, we, most of us enter nursing because we really wanna help others. And here are these conditions that are causing us to have negative emotions. In fact, if you looked at the criteria for PTSD, a lot of us would have met those criteria, meaning that we would have qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. Now the good news is treatment works. Treatment works for PTSD, anxiety disorders, and depression. It really does. The bad news is there's still stigma about getting um, treatment. And the bottom line that I wish everybody could say to themselves and remind themselves when they're having difficult emotions around stress related to COVID is that it's not about mental weakness, it's about biology. And that we can understand, learn to understand our biology and learn resiliency and wellness skills. Um, and uh, there's definitely hope. There's definitely hope for, for to prevent suicide, to affiliate with one another and resume our uh, normal uh, social support uh, mechanisms. There's hope for the future. The problem is that when you've been repeatedly exposed to trauma, as a lot of nurses have been during the COVID um, epidemic, that there's a lot of burden that nurses carry. So um, I, I really think that prevention of suicide is important to think about. Uh, earlier this year, the Association of Critical Care Nurses asked me to write a blog about prevention of suicide. and. I think we have to say the word suicide and we have to have a buddy system. We have to understand that it's a, uh, a transient mood state. It's that if we talk about it, we're not gonna cause somebody to go over the edge and, and die by suicide. We have to be open and we have to rely on the latest evidence about prevention of suicide. And it's especially poignant that earlier this year, there was a study published in JAMA Psychiatry that showed that nurses have the highest rate of suicide amongst the health professions. It's true for uh, both men in nursing and women in nursing. So, you know, what Dr. Farger said about a buddy system, that's very important. That's very important because we're designed to uh, live amongst one another and COVID really took that away from us. And the support that we can give each other is huge. And, and by naming these uh, mood states and these stressors, we can really go a long way to fighting the stigma that's been associated with conventional uh, assessments of what uh, stress really is. Because we now know in, it's 
we, we've learned in the late 1990s and early 2000s, we need to practice trauma-informed care because what happens to you is hugely important and it shapes your worldview. Now we know about resiliency-informed care and there's a lot that healthcare systems can do to uh, improve resiliency uh, skills and create working environments where nurses can thrive. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad, I'm glad we're having the discussion because you're exactly right because people need to understand to take away the stigma element to have that conversation about suicide is how you get to that preventative state, how you're able to reach those that might be vulnerable. And you started talking about something about resilience and I like to spend some time talking about resilience, you know, getting to know resilience a little bit more because for a perfect example, our, our nurses who've been in nursing for a long time, um, we've, we've been ups and downs and different things, whether it be you know, new leadership, staffing shortages, this issue, that issue. But we have nurses now who come into this as their first experience. This is their first experience in that space. We have built resilience over time. Yes, we're just as vulnerable, but we've built resilience. How do we get the new graduate nurse, the new, uh, very, um, the, uh, the nurse who's very new to the field to get them to understand resilience in the time of COVID? Suzanne, do you have an opinion on that? I do, opinion, uh, in the sense is that part of this being a learning process, that people don't come to the life, um, having relationships and fully understanding the different ways that they can take care of themselves. And so part of this process is, is that healthcare facilities can provide something called resiliency training, which helps the nurse be a better human being, a better healthcare provider, and for, first and foremost, take better care of themselves. So that self-care, which has been overutilized throughout all of this is really about recognizing the individual for the value that they bring and that daily ass assigning to themselves self-care, which translates to taking care of themselves. Um, I consider it as a person cannot take care of other people unless they take care of themselves and use the model of uh, being on an airplane when they come on and say, if you have a child sitting next to you and the oxygen bags drop down, put yours on first because you can't take care of anybody else unless you take care of yourself first. So some of the things that can happen, and this is not about calling something a disease process, but much more about managing wellness and continuing to be able to function so that um, we consider that normalcy be good sleep, that it be about hygiene, and that it be about finding um, balance with nutrition. And so many of these pieces are about really helping people to understand what role they take in taking care of themselves, the most valuable thing that they own is their own health and their mental well-being. And that is uh, something that requires daily maintenance. 
Yeah, this is a, such a good analogy too. Whenever you're talking about the airplane, uh, the oxygen mask, that's a great way to place it because it really is about taking care of self because you can't care for others. So um, as we're getting closer to the end of our time together, I do want to address another issue, Paula. When it comes to a lot of our nurses, most all of our nurses have become surrogate families and surrogate uh, persons within the ICU as uh, uh, some of our COVID uh, patients have fallen victim to the disease process. They become surrogates in the sense that they were the last person there with them. Uh, and that can be very difficult, not only for the provider, but also families as well. For the providers, for the nurses who are there day in and day out with, you know, in that role of surrogate, what resources are available within the health system or any of the health systems to help them overcome this? Well, I would say that their nurse manager would be a good resource. Um, other nurses, like we've talked about, just talking about it with other nurses, those are also good resources. And then if you if you feel that you would like some professional help, then that is an avenue that you should pursue. There should be someone that you can talk to to alleviate some of the psychological stress and trauma that you've gone through. That's a great resource. You know, I know a lot of the hospital systems have, you know, employee assistant plan programs and so forth. So all of that kind of fits into a, a great uh, series of resources. And, you know, any other resources that you have, uh, you know, specifically with your work with a psychological trauma, do you have any other resources you'd like to share with our audience today? I'm uh there's usually a counseling center if you work in a hospital, so that would be a great place to um, meet with someone. That would be a great first step. Excellent. Thank you so much for that resource. And I'd like to talk to our other guests, uh, Tina and Suze, uh, Suzanne, about what resources are available for PTSD. So, Suzanne, what, what type of resources are available for our uh, individuals who are struggling with PTSD or either substance use disorder as well? Uh, are we speaking specifically at this university or in general? I would speak to in general in the sense is that there are some excellent treatment choices out there. I have experience with working with eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is EMDR, um, which helps individuals who have trauma to essentially process through it so they're able to get on with their life. It does not take it away. It just puts it into uh, a different perspective and allow the individual to take a look at it and then move on. So it is treatment works is what I can say. And that in this process, if nothing else, to kind of normalize the sense that seeking treatment is part of taking care of yourself as a human being. Uh, group therapy is also very helpful. Um, However, I would say that for nurses to begin to think about the fact that uh, they can create their own buddy system, which would be people that they can reach out to and plan to reach out to on a routine and regular basis, not just when they're in crisis. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's such a, that's a, a great uh, group of resources. Uh, Tina, what resources do you have or can you recommend for those who are struggling are considering or contemplating suicide? So what we know from the research about nurses who die by suicide is that uh, the, the, the most common way that they die is through overdose. And, 
And Dr. Fogger was, was mentioned uh, about the availability of substances in the workplace and how it, uh, it could easily happen that uh, nurses could get hold of these substances. I believe that we can also see a pattern for people, for nurses who are becoming increasingly distressed. And often they have uh, co-occurring um, mood and anxiety symptoms. So if you see your buddy, your, your uh, work buddy, uh, starting to become more anxious and more nervous and uh, seems to be reacting and basically ex also exhibiting symptoms of some post-traumatic stress, you can intervene and you can have a crucial conversation and say, I'm concerned about you. Um, what's going on? And then you can kind of reveal a little bit about your stresses and in that way, make it a dialogue because those dialogues are so important, dialogues of concern. And so I think we need to teach our um, nursing students coming up about how to recognize symptoms of um, PTSD in other nurses and our colleagues. And um, so it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say, I'm not perfect here. And you know, uh, I need some help. And, and UAB has a fabulous app called the Be Well app. And it's, it's not unlike other apps that, like the VA has a, a COVID app for veterans, but all these apps um, are encourage people, they coach people. If you sign up for it, you can get reminders. And if you're a UAB employee, for example, a UAB nurse, you can sign up for the app, take the Take the quiz, take the assessment, and it will send you reminders to do things like spend some time with people who support you. Um, go outside and expose your brain to sunshine, you know, and get outside and exercise. All of these things are associated uh, with uh, recovery from stress and anxiety. And I think we have um, a, a graphic that talks about multiple uh, activities that have been shown to re renew the well-being of nurses. And it's, it, I believe it's from that. Yeah, there it is. Activities to strengthen well-being. Uh, talking with colleagues, exercise, uh, expressions of gratitude. You know, <clears throat> in Alabama, we have a, a lot of spiritual focus, and that's certainly something that has been associated with strengthening one's well-being. Um, and it's whatever works for you. Uh, a lot of times a resource for strengthening well-being is, is an animal, a pet, or it can be whatever the, the individual wants it to be. And that's the beauty of it. We can develop our own resources. And indeed, that Be Well app that I mentioned has a place to store photos in the app of your resources that, are, that do strengthen Excellent. Thank you so much. Some great resources. So we're approaching our time today. So in our last minute together, I'm going to go around for just a quick soundbite final takeaway. So Suzanne, what final takeaway do you have for our viewers? Just for nurses who are out there to recognize that each of them are precious and that um, they are valuable resources to themselves most particularly, and that uh, if one's not feeling well, to consider what needs to happen to get feeling better. Excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Tina, 
What do you have as a final takeaway? It's okay to ask for help. It's not mental weakness that you're experiencing stress. And finally, uh, treatment works. Treatment really works. And we have every, every few months you hear about something that's working better for treatment of stress, PTSD, and anxiety. Excellent. Thank you. And Paula? I would say uh, just talk with others about what you're feeling, what you're going through. Um, that's totally okay. And uh, do something good for yourself. Do something nice for yourself. Just a little self-care. And um, don't be afraid to get help if you need to. Excellent. Thank you again. And thank you all today. We really appreciate it. This has been such a great discussion about something very um very impactful to many of our uh, family, friends, people we know, and nurses within our community. And what great takeaway messages, and we really appreciate it. Thank you again for being with us. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.